Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome. Happy Friday. I am Jason Whitlock. Welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I got some good and bad news to report. The good news is Uncle Jimmy's furniture has finally arrived from Los Angeles. Its five-month journey across the country has now ended with the furniture arriving here in Nashville. But the bad news is that means Uncle Jimmy's not here because he's getting his furniture unloaded at his house. So it's just me and you and some great guests. Hey, in about an hour, Vody Bachman, you guys know him, celebrated author, minister, thought leader, public intellectual, one of the smartest people on the planet, one of the most spiritual people on the planet. He will be right here in studio with us, and we are going to have a fascinating discussion with one of the foremost minds in America, although he lives in Africa now, uh, Vody Bachman. So stay tuned for that. Uh, LeVar Arrington, we're going to roll out to L.A., get his thoughts. We'll let him gloat. Well, I don't even know if he can gloat. Dak played decent. We'll get into that here in a second. LeVar Arrington will join us. Steve Kim, we'll go out to Los Angeles and we'll talk some ESPN news. And has ESPN installed a laugh track? Are they going for laughter? Are they trying to bring the fun back to ESPN? I'll talk about that with Steve Kim and Delano Squires, Professor D., He's going to join us. He's written a terrific column today about uh, men abandoning their responsibility and how we need to make men responsible again. Uh, But we'll start by, uh, I don't have a true fire to start today because I'm going to I'm going to bring LeVar in early to the show. He wants to gloat because, oh, oh, uh, Dak Prescott played really well in a loss. He threw for 400 yards and the Cowboys lost. And everybody's throwing a big parade for, for, for Dak Prescott. He threw for 400 yards. And man, he had an ankle injury last year. And boy, that was just fantastic. And Jason, you said Dak was going to die under the weight of the contract. I didn't say week one. I said over time. I said Dak's going to show flashes of greatness and being able to live up to that. But what I said is, He's not a $40 million quarterback. And over time, I said distinctly, over the next two years, that contract is going to catch up with that. And I stand by that. And I'm not the type of person that's going to throw a ticker tape parade for any professional athlete making $40 million who loses a game. And then I wake up and go to ESPN.com in the morning and Dak Prescott and how well he played is the lead story in a loss? Have y'all ever heard of Herm Edwards? We play to win the game. 
No one. Have you ever seen a coach stand up in a press conference? We play to throw for 400 yards in a loss. That's not the point of football. And if you watch the game last night, which I did, <laughs> that could have easily thrown three interceptions last night. Easily. And I'm not talking, the one interception he did have, that's on the wide receiver. He dropped the ball and it turned into an interception. Uh, but there were two or three other passes, could have been interceptions easy. And, and, and LeVar, I'm going to bring you in now because I believe I stated that Dallas will need to score 30 points to win football games. Uh, how many points did they score last night? I, I don't think what it was, was it, 30. 28, 20, 20, 29. It was high 20s. It was high 20s. Yeah, 20. It wasn't 30. And just like I said, they need to score 30 points to win uh, ball games, and it didn't happen. Uh, so are you one of these people that want to come on here and gloat because Dak threw for 400 yards? I thought you were better than this, Whitlock. I thought you were better than this. <laughs> you know, I, better than what? no, I'm not. I'm, I'm not going down the road that you just set up like Rabbit did on Eight Mound. Come, come and say everything that you thought I was going to say before I said it. Getting ahead of it, I'm actually not coming on here to to give uh, door prizes, to to give runner up trophies. It 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 was a loss. It was a losing effort. But if I'm taking away from the game and and that takeaway is focusing in on what your story represented yesterday on Dak Prescott, there still has to be an origin to every scenario that plays out. And yesterday did not represent an origin of, of sorts for your, your argument point against Dak Prescott. I mean, I just think that that's just valid. He did not show anything that would say he was not an elite quarterback in that game yesterday. I wasn't more focused in on his injuries and, and how they looked. I was focused on, on Dak Prescott and how he, he performed and, and what, what he brought to the table. And he brought leadership to the table. He brought hope to the table. They were in that game. Well, however you want to call it, however you want to dice it up, that was a competitive game. In fact, you couldn't have drawn up a better first game for an NFL season if you tried. And, and so to me, to see him uh, perform on the level that he did against the team that he did it against, uh, it was a losing effort. But would I be positive on, on what Dallas looks like? I don't think they're going to have to score 30 points all season long to be able to win games because we saw a Dan Quinn defense that looks different. They will get better. You can tell they will get better. All of the signs are there for this defense to actually be a very, very sturdy and strong defense if they can stay healthy. So I was, I came away impressed. Obviously, I was more impressed with Tampa uh, and, and their ability to be able to deliver whenever it is that they needed to deliver. Tom Brady looks like he's playing better football than he did at any other point in time during his career, which is, I mean, we were in the same draft with, like he was in my draft. Now I have to say I was in his draft, right? I went number two in his draft. Um, and I'm okay with saying that at this point. I went number two in Tom Brady's draft, right? Uh, they look good. They look good as advertised. They have a lot to work on as well. There were things that you could break down 
on them. But looking at the way Dallas played, I think Dallas is going to be a, a more competitive team than what I had originally anticipated them to be. And honestly speaking, I don't think that Dak's 400 yards were empty calories. I, I thought that his yards represented them having a chance to win the game and Tom Brady having to have a two-minute drill to, to give them the victory in this opening game. Uh, Tom Brady needed a two-minute drill to win this game because Chris Godwin fumbled the ball at the four-yard line. Or you could say the uh, defense ten- forced a, a turnover. Well, and it's and all they in did, perspective, right? No, no, no. That's a good point. Okay. Uh, they would have scored don't 40 points. Us. You know, I played defense. I, I know you played offense. I know you was an offensive lineman. But wait, don't discredit defense. If a defender delivered a defense. big play, okay, he delivered a play. He hit him. That was a hit. He didn't drop it. It wasn't an unforced error, right? It was a forced fumble. Leonard Fournette's, the Leonard Fournette's interception, basically, they got credit to Brady. That's on Leonard Fournette. That was. Hitting right in the hands. It did. And so if it, wasn't, if it wasn't for the mistakes that Tampa made, to me, some of them unforced, and Godwin should have just got down and should have never put himself in that position. In my Tampa could have easily scored forty some odd points, and that game could have looked completely well, different. You're not. You're listen, easy. I, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Because you're not throwing I out don't field goals. Want, you're not throwing out I Dallas field goals. I don't want to diminish that completely, because okay. I do think he played well relatively could have had a couple of interceptions in my opinion, but he did play well, but they lost the game. They did. And that's the point. And I'm looking at Dak had some comment that's like, is he in the right head space uh, for this marathon? This is a 17 game NFL season. And I'm looking at, let me see if I can find this headline. I I could, uh uh-oh, I don't lost it. It was from early in the morning. Dak on big return. I'm a better player this year. He is. I'm just sorry. You don't say that on the day you lose. You wait until Wednesday, midweek, when you're on to the next game. But right after a loss, these guys, it feels too good. Losing feels too good for them to be anybody to be said, I'm a better player than I was last year. Yeah, I know we lost, but I'm focused on me. And to me, that's another indication that contract's in his head. He's thinking about justifying that contract more than he is thinking about winning games. I don't buy that. I don't buy that. I think you're being a contrarian on this one right here. With, I, I know when you're being legit and I know when you're messing around. You're messing around right now. Don't be messing around. Be legit. <laughs> Too legit to quit, in fact. Listen. <laughs> I'm not Dak messing Prescott, around. Do you know what Dak said to Tom Brady after that game when they greeted each other after the game? I, I watched the game, and then I watched what? the end of the yeah, game. He said, I'll see you at the Pro Bowl. He said, I'm I'll see, see you at said, the Pro I'm Bowl. Go ahead. It, well, he said, I'm a see, we'll see you again, is what he said. He didn't say, I'm going to see the you Pro at the Bowl. Pro Bowl. He said, I'm going to see you again. We'll see you again. So, to me, you came away with a loss, all right? There's somebody that you went up against in your time with, and they bested you. It didn't mean that they were better than you overall. It meant that they bested you in that moment. They outclassed you in one way or some way that that led to a loss. 
It happens to all of us. Dak Prescott was bested by the greatest to ever do it, arguably the greatest athlete of all time, especially in our era of sports. So to to lose to Tom Brady in a game where y'all were dueling, did you feel as though Dak Prescott was not on the level competition-wise in that game that Tom Brady was? No. In that game? No. And I, 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 you Are distracted you sure? me because I've been, I've been racking my brain trying to think when anybody's ever gotten the best of me. And so you've just, I may spend all day thinking about this, trying to you remember. You might have to think a while. Somebody getting the best somebody of me. Somebody got you. And I remember, even if it was, hey, even in, if it in was second big grade, I remember. <laughs> in second grade, I remember. Uh, this is a true story. In second grade, right. and I'm a big kid, and I'm athletic, and I'm at the bowling alley. My mother loved to bowl, and I'm at the bowling alley, and a little white kid that was my age, but he was, you know, smaller than me, not as athletic. We got into an argument, and we started wrestling and fighting. This little white dude put me in some kind of figure four, some kind of wrestling headlock, embarrassed the hell out of me. That's mm. the last time I ever underestimated anybody and ever got embarrassed like that because I had my brother had to come over and pull this little white boy up off okay. of me. It was very embarrassing. Uh, well, I didn't know see, how to wrestle. Uh, okay, yeah, but, but anyway, but, go ahead. But you you got bested <laughs> and and you learned from that, and I can guarantee Second grade, you. That's the last time. Uh, okay, uh, uh, so you learned so, from it. So that was so 50 years ago. Well, then God uh-huh. bless. You, then that lesson <laughs> served its purpose, Whitlock. It served its purpose. And maybe this loss to Tom Brady served its purpose for Dak Prescott and the Dallas Cowboys. And that C.D. Lamb is something else. He is something of, an, of another. And you guys got to see that he on display. He had a display. couple of drops early in the game. He stopped he one drive with a... With a, he with did, a drop, but, but you I, know what that was? I, you know what that was? Well, that second year, I am going to be an amazing receiver. I know this camera is on me. I got my drip on my neck. I got I got my swag right, and I'm thinking more about my swag than I'm, I am playing the game. Once he put that to the side and said, it's C.D. Lamb time, that boy showed out. And then Amari Cooper looked good. He looked real good. They looked real crisp. The only thing that concerned me was that they couldn't run the ball. That still concerned me. But Tyron, all right, Tyron did well. Lael did well. They did well against one of the top pass rushing defenses in the league. They held their own. Dak Prescott looked comfortable in his own skin, looked comfortable in the pocket, moved around real smooth, real nice, was crisp with his deliveries, wasn't afraid to pull it down and and run. I just felt like they looked like a competitive team. They looked like a competitive team on defense. They were swarming to the ball. They were much more competitive, much more aggressive. They played much faster. If you were to put a split screen up and show this defense with some of the same players from last year up against what they look like in this first game, they are moving at least 30 to 40 miles per hour faster than what they were under Nolan's defense last year. So to me, looking at how this team shaped up and how they matched up, they were very, very comparable to Tampa Bay in that game last night. And it should be stated. I mean, I am a detractor as much as I possibly can be of the Dallas Cowboys. I am not a fan of them as as a personal person. But from the, the 
analytical side and from the expert side of what I bring to the table and breaking down that game last evening, Dallas looked like a team that can compete, not only compete to win their division, but they might be able to make a little bit noise and take a step further ahead in the playoff race as well. All right, listen, uh, I want to move on to Cam Newton. Uh, I, I, will, I will tell our audience, our listeners, viewers, uh, after the show, I'll give you a definition of concerned, because uh, okay. uh, LeVar mentioned being very concerned about, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll define that for you guys after the show. Uh, LeVar, I also want to mention, you starting to look like a dark-skinned T.J. Hushmanzada. What's going that on with hilarious. your hair? That is hilarious. <laughs> hey, man, I just pull it back in a ponytail. I just pull it back, that's all. Are you T.J. Hushmanzada's daddy? His lo- <laughs> I am not. I am not. <laughs> anyway, hey, let me play the clip uh, from Cam Newton today. He had his little funky right. Friday. And him and his dad, he got his dad involved in this video, his explanation about what happened in New England. Let's play the clip, and then we'll come back and talk about it. All right. Because it's giving me, like, retirement vibes. Like, <laughs> this ain't that. You know what I mean? This is, so let's, this, let's cut the, ch- this let's is cut not to that. the chase. Like, I know we, we know. Your career I gotta is let, not over. Absolutely not. Uh, but I will, I'll be, I will be remiss if I didn't, you know, be, a, be honest. Did it catch me by surprise being released? Absolutely. You know. Do I think this would have happened without me being away from the team for five days? Honestly, honestly, yes, it was going to happen. It was going to happen. Inevitably. Did it did it help ease the decision? Yes. The reason why they released me is because indirectly I was going to be a distraction. Without being a starter. Without being a starter. Yeah. And this was how verbally or in the locker room. Just my aura. Okay. Just my aura. And, And that's just and I told you this off camera. That's my gift and my curse. Yeah. When you bring a Cam Newton to your facility, when you bring a Cam Newton to your franchise, people are interested by mere fact they of are intrigued. who is he? Yeah. Why does he wear yeah. his hair? Yeah. Why does he talk? Why does he act? Why does he perform? Why yeah. does all these yeah. questions? Yeah. So let's just be, let me be honest with you. Come to me. Saying this. Yeah. If they would have asked me, what I play behind, they said, Cam, we're going to give the team to Matt. Okay. You're going to be the second string. We okay. expect you to be everything and some yeah. to guide yeah. him throughout yeah. this tenure. Okay. I would say absolutely. Yeah. Cam. But listen. Cam. Listen. The truth of the matter is this. He would have been uncomfortable. Mm. Uh, Leverington. Your thoughts on that whole thing, Cam, with the hair popped up out of his hat, sitting across from his dad. I'm just going gonna, gonna to be honest. It wouldn't matter how much money I made. My daddy wouldn't be caught anywhere on camera with my hair sticking up out of a hat like that, uh, talking about the NFL or talking about any, talking about uh, a movie, anything. He wouldn't, he would, he would have slapped that. Well, anyway. Your thoughts. You're old school. You're old school Midwest cat. Like it, it makes sense that yeah. you're not as as liberated in in how you express yourself. Um, Neither that was my way. father. But go ahead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, and, and listen, it was my mom, right? I just happen to be a little bit more rebellious in how I do things. 
um, just, you know, I'm just more more free spirited. I think Cam is free spirited. I've had a, a chance to spend time with Cecil at, at, at one point um, a while back and very responsible, very, very, uh, very down to earth, very well thought out person um, when when you spend time with him. In fact, I spent a few times with him. Uh, anyway, I, listening to what he said, I've been hearing a lot about they were going to give Cam the opportunity to be the backup and that he chose to want to be and said, release me and give me an opportunity to go be a starter somewhere. That was a started conflicting um, account of what was taking place. To hear him clear it up, I'm glad he gave his version of the story because that is what was circulating at one point is that he asked to be released when he found out he was not going to be the starter. I think listening to what he has to say, I think he's starting to see his own mortality as it applies to his career as as an NFL player. Uh, him and his father are so close in nature and in relationship that to have a candid conversation on camera where he's he's airing it out in terms of what he's feeling and what what's next for him. I didn't think he did himself any disjustice. I, I was my biggest concern was would he do himself a disservice by addressing what took place. I, I thought it was interesting that he went in the third person every once in a while to to discuss what Cam represented, but he wasn't telling no lies. From my account, uh, from my interpretation, he was just keeping it a hundred a buck on on what was going on. And so, for him to be in a situation that he's in right now. A lot of it has to do with the fact that his aura is too big and it would not be the best of decisions to have Mac Jones in the situation he's going, he's walking into to have Cam Newton in that locker room when them growing pains start to take place. You don't want to have a scapegoat and you definitely don't want your new draft pick to turn into that scapegoat. And you don't want to start hearing boos because you know that there's a valuable option that's sitting there right there on your sideline that was maybe an injury and a COVID situation away from your team being a playoff team in a in a rebuild year. So I think it had to happen. I think he was very obvious about it. And what happens now from here, I think is interesting because if it exists in New England with then it exists everywhere in the National Football League. He's not going to be a good backup to anybody in anybody's organization around the National Football League because, quite frankly, when he walks through that door, his aura is going to command a different type of attention, and it's going to be a distraction. And he's right. And you can't be lesser and of who so you are. And so bottom line, LeVar, let me cut you off here. I'm sorry. Yeah. But yeah. cut it off. What Cam basically just said is, I built a persona and an aura with my style of dress, with my crazy hair, and with everything else that comes along with that makes it hard for me to be a backup quarterback. So bottom line, what he's saying is, That's what you I said. talked myself up out of a job. He, no, That's what he you said. said. I've created no, no. an aura no, no, that makes no, me no. a bad backup quarterback. I can't. Now, he didn't there's create 32 that aura. jobs I can't get. 
Yes, he did. He's sitting on he TV that, he had and that on aura camera when he was in college. saying his hair is a problem with his hair sticking up out of a hat. He had yeah, that I'm a distraction. My hair and all this other stuff. And you know what? I'm still going to lean into being this distraction. I like Cam the player. I was rooting for him. But looking at his daddy sit up there on camera and basically co-sign this, and basically his daddy wanted to jump in there and, 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 and take some shots, but it didn't happen. And it, it's like, oh, here's the problem. He got a best friend. He ain't got a daddy. He got a best mm. friend. They, they, they are business partners now in Cam's aura and all this other stuff. And, and the debt, and again, this is where I give my father, and my mother drives me crazy from time to time. But damn it, they keep it 100% real with me and tell me things. I, my father's past now. But until his death, he'd be on his deathbed and telling me whatever came to his mind, whatever he thought was best for me. He didn't want to be my best friend. At no point, even when I, I think taking I care think gotta, of my mother today, take depending on me, she don't give a damn about being my best friend. She wants to be mama at all times. And that's what I would have loved to have seen Cam's daddy stand on being daddy rather than I'm your best friend and I'm going to co-sign for this mess. And yeah, you done talked yourself up out of a job that could pay you. And again, I know he's made 130 million bucks, but there's backup jobs that's four or five, six million dollars a year, maybe eight million dollars a year. And you've talked yourself up out of those jobs, Cam. Your money making days is over. My daddy would never be good with that. Uh, all I'll say is every everybody has and we their, can be quick because I got to go. Yeah, everybody has say their different again. ways. Everybody has their different ways. I, I think once you get to a certain age, you should become more of an equal to your to your parent because they've trained you to be able to maneuver and to be successful in your life. I, I, don't, I don't need my dad to, to come at me the same way he did when I was a baby or when I was in grade school or yeah, in middle school. I'm a, I'm a man. Well, but go. we got to speak as men at, at some point in time. We got to speak as men with we got to at There's some no point question in time. About, look, I can get my mother on here right now. And she can tell you that I'm calling all the shots, but mm -hmm. she's going to say what she wants to say. I'm just telling you whether I, I like that, it or that's not. Their relationship. I have to deal with that. Huh? I think that's their relationship. But I think that you're kind of you're looking at it. You wanted him to say his dad to say something different or or condemn his hair or something like not that. Not even but be there. No, he's going. I don't, oh, you do not that mess on there. your own, Cam. Okay. Yeah, but you do that. You do that mess. You sit on TV with your hair going crazy and knowing that it's costing you opportunities to be uh, 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 have a job in the NFL. Cam, you do that on your own off camera. I'm going to say, hey, dude, this is a mistake. I'm not going to participate in your self-destruction of your career. The guy's 32. Tom Brady's 44. There's 10 to 50. He got 10 years. He could be making as little as $3 million a year, but hell, as much as $40 million a year if he ever got back to what he was. And he's talking himself up out of those opportunities. I don't disagree with that, but... I, I, I believe that you got to be true to who you are. And if that's what it is, I'd much rather him be true to who he is be than be careful. true to something else. Be careful of how you define yourself.
That's and very so true. So when you start talking about be true to who you are, be very careful because that is very if you true. define yourself as a if you define yourself as a crip, that means you got to do crip shit all the time. That that you is true. You define yourself as a gangster disciple, you got to do gangster disciple shit. That's you decide, true. Oh, I'm an N word, and and you know I got to live up to being an N word. And N-word is now a term of endearment. You got to live up to that. Be careful. I'm a global icon. I'm this fashionista. I'm this hair guy and all that. Be careful how you define yourself. I do not disagree with that frame of thought. Very well stated, all sir. Right, I got to go. All right. Great. Uh, no, I got to go. Ball State's going to knock off Penn valuable. State this weekend. I know you didn't want to talk yeah. Penn State. I don't. I don't. I don't. I got to go. I got to go. We Thank you for cutting this mic off. All right, we talk about our sponsor, Built Bar, around here all the time, but I have to let you know, all know that these protein bars are really that good. They've become an important part of my daily routine, especially in my fight to shed some pounds and get in shape. These protein bars are low in sugar. Most of them are under 150 calories as well, but most importantly, they are full of great taste and flavor, from salted caramel to Rocky Road to their newest flavors like peanut butter brownie or cookie dough chunk. They have a wide variety for you to pick from. So what are you waiting on? Order these now. Go to Built.com and use promo code FEARLESS to save 15% off your first order. Use promo code FEARLESS for 15% off at Built.com. All right, welcome back. Let's roll out to Los Angeles and visit with my Asian brother from another mother, Steve Kim. And let's talk uh, a little bit more about uh, ESPN. Uh, Steve, a former boxing writer for ESPN, but I think one of the most thoughtful sports media critics in the country. Uh, Steve is very clever. Uh, Steve, you won't be able to double team me with Uncle Jimmy today. Uncle Jimmy's out. (laughs) Uh, so it's just it's just me and you. But look, Steve, I saw something interesting uh, this week that I wanted to get your reaction to. I, I saw it and then I tried to hunt down what it is I saw. And it was a it was a segment on first take where Stephen A. Smith, Molly Karam and Marcus Spears were laughing uncontrollably. And what they were laughing about wasn't really funny. And I, I haven't been able to hunt down that particular clip, but I think they're now using it as a promo. Uh, but I couldn't find it in the actual show, but we found a, a, another clip of, of them laughing and joking. And then I saw somewhere where uh, Dan Orlovsky and Marcus Spears, they were on NFL Live, and they were dancing and laughing. And it, it, anyway, let me show you a couple of clips we did find, mm. and then I'm going to come to you with my question. So, wow. Stephen A., you're not the only one that can have nice things, bro. I'm not And knocking this is it. not the tie. Because you're not the tie. You, you, no, nice this is Jay Hilburn tie. You no, get your tie said from other places. He was watching first take yesterday. Oh, he said, my God. Damn, Stephen A. look good. Let me get that tie right there. Don't you know that song? You're so vain. It's not always about you. Oh, my goodness. Excuse me. Money. Money. Yeah. Money. Money. We're dancing for life. It's not our money. It's you. I just be so happy. I be so happy when these guys get paid and it works out for them. I was talking about Pittsburgh. Y'all need to get this deal done. Steve, this is why you and I are so necessary because, and I don't want to, I don't want to diss the the media critics and the people that it's their job, but they don't pick up 
on things as quickly as you and I do. ESPN has turned on its laugh track. ESPN is saying through Stephen A. Smith and, and Marcus Spears and what they're doing with First Take, hey, we're not having enough fun, guys, and let's turn on the laugh track, and we want to present ESPN as a fun play. I don't think it's a bad strategy because I think ESPN has been locked in such a negative place and everybody coming on thinking it's their job to take a dump on America that they want to pivot to like, hey, no, it's sports, it's fun. But the lack of authenticity, I think, and a lot of the laughter is a bit off-putting to me. But you tell me if, 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 am I seeing ghosts or am I seeing the real thing? I think you're onto something. This is very, very synthetic because it, it seems very forced, very unnatural. And we talked about this a couple days ago with Michael Irvin and Stephen A. It's very natural. There's a chemistry. They're like hauling oats, chocolate in the chip, and it just works and it flows. This here feels very, very forced. Now, on Tuesday and Wednesday, I caught first take a couple of segments with Stephen A. with Bart Scott and Marcus Spears. Now, I didn't think the shows were horrible. I thought they were okay. They were solid. They were sound. But neither guy has that effervescent personality of the playmaker. But they're trying to obviously force something. Now, when it comes to that one segment on NFL Live, I am a big fan of Dan Orlovsky. I think that guy's a football technician. He teaches me the sport. He's taught me a lot. But as I see him kind of gyrating in his chair, he reminds me of that white guy trying to do the cabbage patch at the bar mitzvah. It just looks funny. <laughs> It's like, my God, he's going to break out the running man or the Roger Rabbit next time at the barbecue. I it just Look, Dan Orlovsky is what he is. Don't force him to be something that he's not. But to your point, to try to fun it up, if you will, here's the issue, Jay. They've already lost most of America. And I don't know if a lot of people are actually going back, to be honest with you. And if I wasn't in on this particular program to have the kind of talk about it and to review it and, and answer your questions, I'm not so sure ESPN is destination viewing or that channel that you just have in the background as you're doing your chores just to see what's going on uh, for the rest of your day. It already may be too little too late for all of this. Here's what I would also add to that, Steve, is, is just remember, Stephen A., guest-hosted Jimmy Kimmel's show. And he did a monologue, and he delivered jokes and the whole nine yards. A lot of this, I think, is being driven by Stephen A., whose instincts, I think, are right in terms of like, hey, man, we've lost the ability to have fun over at ESPN. We lost what we had, Dan Patrick and Keith Olbermann. They used to be fun. And they'd have these fun back and forth, doing the highlights, Chris Berman and the nicknames. It used to be fun. Stuart Scott. And, and again, and then ESPN came hyper-political, and it quit being fun, and Stephen A's instincts are right. Hey, let's restore the fun to ESPN. It's, it's sports. We're supposed to be having fun. The problem is Stephen A's not a comedian. And he's trying to be a comedian, and he's not. And and comedy's very hard. And so I, I see Stephen A. <laughs> with the big laugh, <laughs> and every, everything's over the top, and it just comes off force because he's not. Look at you in that tie, that tie. I had that tie on the other day. <laughs> and it's 
and it's okay if people are laughing with you, but if they're laughing at you, it's not as funny. And that's why I think Stephen A might be a bit out over his skis in terms of thinking, I can do it all. I can be the serious opinionist. I can play the race card. I, and you know what? I can also do comedy. I'm not sure if he can pull it off. Jay, there's different forms of comedy. You could be witty. You could be a guy that has a lot of funny quips, do a lot of one-liners. But to actually do stand-up in a monologue, I think is an art form. There's a lot of guys that are funny. I'm funny. Personally, I think I'm hilarious. But I would never do a 10-minute set. Uh, on amateur night. I just wouldn't because I believe that you have to set up the jokes, you have to have a script, and you got to have a certain type of timing. Those guys that could do that and lay themselves naked in front of the public and to make people laugh for 15, 20 minutes and then interview somebody, that to me is an art form. The truly great ones are not appreciated, whether it's Johnny Carson, Jay Leno, or David Letterman. Now, I heard an interview recently where Stephen A. Smith said, I want to do late night talk show hosting he wants to be i guess arsenio hall 2.0 or the latest johnny carson i I give him a lot of credit i think is actually very ambitious to me he's like gordon gecko to him greed is good because i'll be honest with you jay if i was making his money i'd be very complacent i'd be very happy working my five six hours on that show doing a couple of radio hits making an appearance on some couple of shows on the espn network i'd go home I'd rest on my laurels. I'd swim in my money like Scrooge McDuck in a vault full of money. Obviously, Stephen A. Smith has a much bigger goal in mind. He, I, in, in the deepest recesses of his mind, there's two networks out there. There's ESPN and there's also the Stephen A. Smith network. It's clear he believes he's actually bigger than the network. And I think it's going to be an incredible uh, a gambit to take if he leaps out beyond what he does in sports. I want to stay on this topic and what you just brought up. I want to play a clip of Stephen A. doing an interview, I think, with Hot 97, maybe Mm -hmm. in New York. And he's talking about Max Kellerman and his decision making basically to remove Max Kellerman from first take. I think it coincides with what you just said about his ambition. Uh, Let's listen to this clip. But it didn't seem like you and Max had a bad relationship at all. So where does the, where do those rumors come from? And what's the truth with the departure of Max Kellerman from First Take? Well, the rumor's accurate in terms of me wanting him off the show. Let's get that out the way. Uh, yes, I did. Um, you know, we don't have a bad relationship. Uh, I think he's a real good guy. Um, I appreciate what he did for the show. Uh, we were number one for five years. Uh, we stayed number one, and I appreciate that. And what a lot of people don't realize is that not just the work that goes into that, but also the fact that it's a chemistry that you have, and sometimes it just stalls. And the audience lets you know that it is what it is, and you feel the need for something fresh. You feel the need to retool. And the reason why I'm unapologetic about my position is that number one, it's no knock against him personally, his professionalism, his work ethic, and all of that other stuff, his talent. Uh, It's not like um, I wanted the guy to be fired or anything like that. I knew that there were landing spots for him available at this network uh, that would generate just as much, if not more revenue for him and all of that other stuff. And it wasn't really about asking him to be off the show. It was about the fact that I knew that we together 
uh, as far as I was concerned, was not a great partnership anymore. And that was something that needed to change. Huh. So, hmm. Steve, I, I want to pick up here what I think is going on with Stephen A. Smith. And, and I, I, people will hear this as hypercriticism. It's just not. It's just an accurate observation that I've seen a lot of people in television. I, Jamel Hill, Maria Taylor, Michelle Beadle. Everybody goes through this deal where, oh, man, I've got four million Twitter followers or three million Twitter followers. And every time I go to Twitter, I'm a big deal. And I've got all these media people writing stories about me like I'm a big deal. And none of that, no perspective is provided to Stephen A. Smith or Jamel Hill or Maria Taylor. Hey man, no one's really watching this network because of you. Stephen A. Smith, and I'm not trying to take a dump, but he starts talking about how successful they were with First Take. They're getting 300, 350,000 viewers. Tucker Carlson's <laughs> getting 4 million a night. ESPN's, pardon the interruption, used to get a million, a million and a half viewers in its heyday. Now everybody's acting like because First Take averages 340,000 viewers that they've set television <laughs> on fire and they have this massive audience and it's just not true. And so you can get caught up. Oh, look at all the success and this. And boy, if I just get Michael Irvin in here, we're going to average 400,000 viewers. <laughs> and that's the, <laughs> it's just, and, and, and so I just think there's a delusion among the talent and the executives and the media are allowing all of these people in sports media to live in this delusional world where 300, 400,000 viewers is setting the world on fire and it's just not. Jason, I would equate ESPN boasting about its ratings uh, at its current level like being the fastest Asian sprinter. Yeah, you might be number one in Asia. You're still running a 13.85. You're not dealing with the Jamaicans. Okay. <laughs> Let's be very honest. You might be first in a very slow race. Couple of thoughts about that particular clip. Number one, points to Stephen A for honesty. To just put it out there like, yeah, I had to get rid of Max. Also, I'm beginning to think he's the black branch Ricky. He said, look, always get rid of a player a year too early than a year too late. It's obvious that he's Michael Jordan and Jerry Krause of the Bulls, okay? Like, that's his show. That's his baby. That's his brand. And if he feels as though it's getting stale, you're getting out of there. But, Jason, I really believe there's a dangerous precedent here is that when you give someone power, uh, power can corrupt. And people that are corrupt often have a lot of power. You just wonder, is it dangerous, Jane, I ask you this, when the tail, even a guy like Stephen A. Smith, can wag the dog. Is that necessarily healthy for the overall network? I, I would say this, and, and again, I don't want, I'm not trying to defend Stephen A or his followers. <laughs> uh, if Stephen A were some kind of television savant and genius, I'd say, hey, give him all the power. He's got TV perfectly figured out. But the truth is, he doesn't. And I think he's got good instincts for Stephen A. Smith. I think that 
you know, he knows how to be loud and obnoxious and to be polarizing. And I think there's a place for that. Does he have an overall vision for a television network and a true mm. vision for a show? I'm not so sure. And so, yes, I, I think it's it's dangerous. I do think there's some television talent. Take a Bill Maher. I think he has a vision for how to execute TV and how to execute media projects that I, I think people should listen to and should be revered. He, he put out a movie, Religious, that was successful, whether I agreed with it or disagreed with it. He's been involved politically incorrect, and, and now his own show, Bill Maher. Stephen A. Smith has been involved with one show that has had a level of success. He and Skip Bayless doing their thing, and, and I think a lot of people uh, consider that lowest common denominator sports debate talk and they had some success with it but but they didn't reinvent sports tv or tv they just took what pti was and put a uh more primitive version of pti <laughs> out there for at a time of day when mm. people without jobs and people on parole have plenty of time to watch tv and <laughs> Uh, that's what, look, I'm just telling you what the show was and people know th that that's what it was and that, you know, Skip did his thing with the race baiting and, and, and Steve, I'm not saying it worked to a degree. Can you build a television network around that? I'm not so sure. Let me, uh, ask you one, one last thing today. And I think you watched some of it. Uh, Tim Tebow made his mm. debut on on First Take, and I was wondering, you know, with with the new First Take, with all Molly's laughing uncontrollably, Stephen A's laughing uncontrollably, how did Tim Tebow fit into the the new laugh track in living? I guess we're gonna call it in living First Take color. How did how did uh, Tim Tebow fit in? Well, you know how I said a couple days ago that Michael Irvin and Stephen A. Smith are like ice cream. So you have it once a week. I'm beginning to think they need to go full Baskin-Robbins with Michael Irvin because the other guys just don't work as well. But if Tim Tebow was a flavor, he'd be the vanilla uh, bucket. Let's just put it that way. I, th I think his nickname should be Tim Token at this point. It's almost like as if they're saying, okay, let's look at this lineup here. Uh, need to need a little paleness, little need a paleness here. Oh, and it's football season, so let's let's pander to the SEC people. We need a football guy. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Bobby Burrock of OutKick is talking about the diversity of ESPN and their hires. If you actually specifically look at that show, there's not a lot of diversity, at least in terms of the racial makeup. And it seems to me that Tim Tebow is that guy. They're like, OK, who can we get uh, once a week so that we fit the demographic that's actually going to be able to co-host? So and now from now on, he is forever Tim Token on ESPN. Mm. <laughs> he went from touchdown Tim to Tim Token. And Tebow, if you see this, I like Tim Tebow. So do uh, I. So do I. <laughs> he, he might be a little too dry for the new version of First Take. It, the in living color with the, the, to, the scoop of Token Tim uh, may not be the right mix. No, it may not Steve, be. But... No, go ahead. I'll, final well, thought. 
Well, final thought here. I, I loved your article yesterday comparing uh, Dak Prescott or making the analogy to Eric Parrish making dollars EPMD. I came up with one just real quickly here. Uh, I believe that it's schooly Dak because PSK is making that green with the extension and he's looking at his Gucci and it's about that time to become a legitimate top 10 quarterback. I believe I'm going to make a prediction right now in three months. You'll be writing a retraction to the story saying that Dak is worth every doggone dime and that he is worth every penny of that contract. Timestamp this right now, Jay. I'm going to make that prediction. Hold on. PSK, what does it mean? You maybe go to Google to get your Schoolie D reference. Uh, you And I used to, ha- I used to own uh, Schoolie D uh, albums or CDs. Uh, good stuff, Tim. I'm Tim. Steve. <laughs> Steve Kim. I'm not going to call you Steve Kerr today. Uh, great stuff. <laughs> we got to let you go. All right, I got to move on. Let me tell you about uh, my good friends over at Good Ranchers. If you're tired of getting the same lame foods and meals from your local grocery store, then you need to go see our friends over at Good Ranchers. They'll provide you a meal that is beyond anything you've experienced before and at a price that you'll have a hard time believing. They have great food selections like the Cattleman and Ranchers Classic that will provide a great feast for everyone in your family. And to make it all better, it's all from right here in America. All of it, 100% American farm-raised chicken and beef that can be easily shipped to you in the comfort of your very own home. So stop waiting and go order right now. If you subscribe, you'll get $20 off and free express shipping. Get steakhouse quality for less than $5 per meal. Go to GoodRanchers.com fearless to get $20 off and free express shipping. Someone just tweeted me yesterday, the little shipment of Good Ranchers. Good job, Good Ranchers, great food. I don't even want to call it good food. It's great food. That's GoodRanchers.com fearless. All right, welcome back. Time for our man Delano, Professor D. Uh, Delano, the smartest man on the show. We're going to roll out to Washington, D.C., bring in Delano. Delano, bad news. Uncle Jimmy's not here. His furniture Ah. has finally arrived from Los Angeles after a five-month journey crisscrossing the country. It's finally made it here to Nashville, so we gave him the day off so he could get furniture at his house. Uh, So it's just me and you. which still makes you the smartest man on the show. Uh, <laughs> and you've written another piece that is, is terrific. It's picked up on a conversation we had earlier in the week about men and responsibility. Uh, and the headline is, American men need to make responsibility <laughs> great again. Explain your column today. Sure. I mean, I started a column, I talked about, you know, the the Texas abortion law from last week and, you know, that issue abortion has been in the news, in the news cycle for for the better part of a week now. And really to me, what was sort of the unspoken part of that entire conversation is the extent to which our conversations about abortion are really conversations about the state of the American family. And a big part of that is um, how men see their role in the family um, and what they see as their responsibilities, and to a large extent, the degree to which many of us are not fulfilling their responsibilities. And this is a conversation that cuts across um, age and ethnic background and income status, 
Um, you know, I can go from, you know, old, you know, the Rolling Stones to P. Diddy to the guy working, you know, um, an hourly wage job. This, this is really about the future of American men and really what happens when we don't fulfill our responsibilities. And, and one of the things that really made me, inspired me to, to write it, um, again, one was th- the reaction that I saw from a lot of men, on the, typically on the left, who sounded like gender studies majors, right? Sophomores maybe. So they've taken a couple classes, so they, they think they know enough to sound to sound really deep. But they kept saying, What's the woman's body? It's her choice. It's her choice. And and one, my response was, choice to do what? Right? Just be specific about what we're what we're saying she's choosing. But the other part is they spoke as if um, you know, women got pregnant by happenstance or as if they were amoebas and they reproduce by, by binary fission. Men play a, a, a central role in the reproductive and family planning process. And to the extent that so many of these men are willing to, to discharge that responsibility and put it all on men, uh, all on women, excuse me, you, you can understand why so many you know, American women feel you know, stressed out and frustrated because although they say, because many of them have been bathed in feminist thought for the better part of 50 years, although they say in many respects that they want to be just like men and um, treated the same and, and, and wear both the same and there are no differences between the sexes, um, the truth of the matter is that women need men and men need women. And when men are not fulfilling their responsibilities, women tend to feel stressed out and overwhelmed. And when both parties are not fulfilling their responsibilities to their offspring, then ch- children tend to be vulnerable um, and, and you know, oftentimes deal with abuse of one t- sort or another. So that's, that's really why I wrote it. Um, I'll give you a quick example, Jason. A couple, couple weeks ago, you know, my best friend, my god brother, he was down in DC with his family. He, he, he has a wife and three girls. And we were all out, you know, enjoying some time together, went to get some ice cream. It, it was late, but not too late, but it was dark outside. And we noticed this, uh, a young a boy, he was probably about six, seven years old. And he just rode up to us, started talking to the kids. And, you know, we didn't think anything of it, but two things struck me. One, he was a young boy who was riding a grown man's bike. So I knew that he spent a lot of time out, you know, by himself, you know, on the street, not, not that he was, I'm not saying he was into anything criminal, but you could just tell that he was a kid whose mom probably said, all right, it's daytime, go out and play and come back whenever you're ready. But two, he ended up walking away out of you know, the sight of vision of whoever he was with. And I just thought to myself, where are his parents? And we all thought the same thing because again, he was safe with us, but God knows what could have happened if, if he met up with somebody else. And it's all too often I see that, and particularly in communities that I've lived, where you see kids who are young children who are left to themselves. And this world can often be cold and unforgiving. And more often than not, nothing happens, but sometimes you get kids who, who get snatched off the street, um, who are, again, abused physically and sexually. And every time I see cases like that, the first, one of the first things that, that I think of is where are their fathers? Because it's a man's job to provide for and protect his offspring. And that's really why I wanted to write the article. It it, it struck home with me, obviously, because I think 
this whole irresponsibility that men are leaning into, and it's being justified by the feminist movement and by the uh, hostility towards the patriarchy. Everybody thinks, or seems to think now in popular, if we're more of a matriarchy, we'll be better. And I'm just, I, I reject that. And, and I, when I hear you referenced again today, like Nick Cannon and his mm -hmm. comments earlier a few weeks ago about how, well, you know, women are in control of relationships and it's whatever they decide. And we're just passengers in a car that's being driven by them. I'm, t I'm seeing way too many men who are comfortable with that, that, you know what? If she allows me to have unprotected sex with her, that's on her. And if that unprotected sex produces a baby and she decides to keep it, that's on her. And I don't, I'm just a passenger and I'll do whatever the, the law requires. I may do some of the things she asked me to do, but that's all I'm required to do. And I just hear people that don't want to be responsible for their mm -hmm. actions. And I, I look at these guys like, these are cowards. They're yep. laying down and they want women to take care of them and their offsprings. It's Now, I may uh, contribute some finances if I'm in position to, to you taking care of my kid and I'll babysit him or her when you ask me to. But, but all I hear is cowardice and people that don't want to take responsibility uh, for their actions. And if, if this doesn't stop, and again, you know, I, I look at us as uh, African-Americans, we're like the test case for this mm. theory that the crazy left has that, you know what? We really don't need the nuclear family. Mm -hmm. We're the test case for that. And I'm looking at the violence in our communities, the dysfunction, the incarceration rate. I'm looking at the academic test scores and what are happening with, in particular, little black boys and how they're not achieving and no one cares. And I'm like, if we're the test case, somebody should say, hey, the results are in. This not shit working. don't work. It's true, and and the bet and we've we've seen about sixty plus years of of results, and we've seen, um, you know, exactly where that that leads when you have a community. It doesn't matter who it is, and this is, I think, one of the difficulties, Jason, is that in, in our country, um, you know, we are so primed to think about everything through the lens of race. You know, going back to, you know, the snip letter, that it's hard to talk about. The, the impact of culture. And when I say culture, I, I just mean the norms, the values, the behaviors that become accepted as as standard and normal. And, um, you know, the, the oftentimes you'll hear people say, well, the, the black family was decimated in slavery and Jim Crow. And that's just simply not true. Right. Black marriage rates and, and out of wedlock birth rates were on par to those of whites for, for the, most of um, you know, the, the 20th century is certainly coming out of, out of, out of slavery, you know, well into the 1940s and 1950s. Um, but we have seen how that experiment has ended up. And 
what has ended up doing is part of this is policy, part of it is culture. These dynamics are, are always, you know, changing and, um, you know, sort of playing on one another. But when the government provides incentives for men to abandon their responsibilities, some number of men are going to do that. And what it ends up doing is we end up taking what um, was originally conceived as a social safety net. And for some number of families, I'm not even saying most, but it's, it's a significant enough number where that safety net goes from a net to a hammock to a web. And it's hard for people to get out. And that's how you see multiple generations repeating the same types of behavior, where, where again, you may have a family reunion and you may get three men over the age of 30 who are there. So the, the notion, particularly in the black community, that we are suffering because of patriarchy, that, that blows my mind. Because in my mind, when I, when I go out and I, and I look around, I'm asking myself, well, where are the patriarchs? Where are the pop pops? Where, where are the great uncles? Where are the men who are the source of wisdom and counsel, who the young people come to and say, hey, hey, um, you know, I have an issue. Can you, can you sort of guide me on this? I don't see that, particularly not in low-income low communities. I, I just, I don't see that. And again, this is, this is not an attack on moms because oftentimes they are, they are the ones who, who take up the responsibility. It's a, it's a clarion call for, for men to step up because if we don't, everyone uh, under our authority is going to suffer. And that's part of the reason I included, you know, a, a new principle um, that I've been thinking about for a long time, you know, the law of um, dissipating responsibility. And I, I got that because I remember back when you know, I was an engineering student that took taking physics, they talk about the law of conservation of energy. And some people may just know it um, sort of offhand, which is energy is neither created nor destroyed. It's just passed from one body to, to the next or passed from one form to the next. And responsibility is a lot like that. So once it's created, it, it's almost never destroyed. It just goes from one entity to another. So if I don't fulfill my responsibility as a dad, then somebody else has to step in um, and, and take that role. But oftentimes they, generally speaking, they are not going to care about, their, their role does not care about my responsibilities as much as my role should. And that's one of the reasons that I'm, I'm so you know, passionate about promoting the natural family, the nuclear family, um, because none of these issues are gonna turn around if you know, we continue on the trajectory that, that we're on. And again, this, this is an American issue now. You start to see some of the same um, uh, uh, outcomes in rural white America as you've seen in urban black America. So again, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a race thing. This is just the, the natural order of things. And if, if dads weren't important, um, and if marriage wasn't important, the middle class people wouldn't get married, but they do. They follow the success, the success sequence, right? Finish school, get a job, get married, then have children. And people who follow that, millennials who follow that, have a single digit poverty rate across races and ethnicities, have a single digit poverty rate by the time they're in their mid thirties. Um, so we just need to get back to that and, and really start to, to think clearly about what we owe um, to the people who we are supposed to be, you know, loving, providing for, and protecting. Delano, I, I, I wanna, and there's a reason why we call you Professor D, is because <laughs> you're so smart. And one of the things I like to do is, is just 
dumb down your conversation to a level that people like me can ingest. And so the thing I thought was brilliant about your point, and I want to make it completely clear to people, what Delano's saying is like, if you create a child, the system is set up, and I'm talking about God's system is set up for the parents, the mom and dad to be the best person to take care of that child. And then once, if they abandon their roles and you give them off to grandmama, Mm -hmm. she does the best that she can. Mm -hmm. But it ain't nowhere, quite frankly, it's not as good as what Mm -hmm. mama and daddy could have done if they had stayed the course. And then when you give them to aunties and uncles, it ain't as good as what grandmama was gonna do. And then when you turn them over to foster care, Mm -hmm. it ain't as good as what aunties and uncles would have done. And then when they get just left somewhere, all hell breaks loose. And we have too many kids in America of all races, it is acute in our community, who are Mm -hmm. disconnected from their primary source of development, energy, love, there's all kind, there's all kinds of studies like that that I wish they taught this in school rather than hey you may be a different sex but again when you have a baby you should let the father and the mother let that baby rest on your skin because yep. there's a connection and when 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 the baby's in the womb daddy and mama should be talking to the baby because there's a connection that builds and when we start moving these kids away from these connections that God and the designer, and let's say you don't even believe in God, but this is the way humans were designed to develop and, and to be developed. When you start moving away from that, you get what we have right now in America yep. and it's chaos and it's, it's kids, they don't even understand it. But a lot of these young people, the reason why they have no respect for older people is because just instinctively, they know, hey man, y- y'all pulled me out of the election, uh, uh, electricity socket way too mm. soon. Yeah, mm. I didn't get the proper voltage put into me mm-hmm. that only mama and daddy could put in me, and, mm-hmm. and I'm mad about it. And I'm mm-hmm. mad at all these older people that didn't put into me what, I, what they were supposed to put into me. And, you know, it was a brilliant piece. And, and again, I'm repeating myself from, I think, earlier in the week. But, you know, your writing and our conversations have really sharpened my understanding and focus and, and just what abortion really represents mm-hmm. and why we should be against it. Because yeah. what abortion really is is just people shouting out loud. I don't want the responsibility for what I created. And not only that, I don't even want the responsibility of taking the steps necessary not to create something that I don't want the responsibility for. Because I'm just sorry, there's from condoms to birth control to abstinence, there's all kinds of ways to not create something you don't want to be responsible for. And this society and this country is derelict at doing that. And so, you know, we should put a new title, make uh, men and women, (laughs) (laughs) make American men and women 
make responsibility great again. I don't, I'm screwing it up, but uh, <laughs> anyway, you said a mouthful this morning and in your column and, and certainly today. Final thought and I'm gonna let you go. Sure. So yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. I think, again, the, the subtext of that abortion conversation is really you know, how we as a society, and again, particularly as men, um, how we view life. Do we think that, you know, human life has inherent dignity and worth? And if we don't, if we think it's contingent on the manner of conception or the economic, you know, the tax bracket of parents, um, what you get from that, from that particular worldview is a slippery slope downward. So when you see guys who are nonchalant about their own offspring, you shouldn't be surprised when they don't have any regard for grown women. And if they, if they don't have any regard for the most precious and innocent you know, parts of life, then they won't hesitate to disrespect or degrade a woman and get paid for it handsomely and then market it and package it back to the people who look like them and tell them this is our culture. So, so part of the reason that, that I was you know, sort of, well, to be frank, going so hard last week and this week is because I was trying to get people to, to open their eyes and maybe consider a different point of view. Because, and again, especially in our community where so many guys call themselves kings, right? They're king this and king that. But I'm asking myself, what king takes it upon himself to kill off his offspring and, and disrupt his lineage? And what king finds himself constantly afraid to say anything perceived as critical of his queen or his princesses? Because this is not just an abortion issue. There, there are men out there, and some of them are married. I'm talking about fathers who are afraid to tell their daughter, hey, 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 boo, I think, I think that dress is a little too short. I think that, that those clothes are a little too revealing. Because feminists have told them, and they've, they've drunk in the lies, that they have no right to speak about how a woman, even a woman in his own house, um, dresses or carries him herself. Um, so what you see, again, is, is not just guys who are afraid to take responsibility, but guys who are scared out of their mind. And it, it's so ironic because some, some of the, the biggest, strongest, um, you know, men in our society are terrified of women terrified to say anything critical to them to, they and I'm, I'm thinking like guys like you know LeBron or, or you know any pick whoever rapper you want to talk about or elected officials or political pundits when they see people like Cardi B it doesn't matter what Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion do on screen or TV or what images they push out they they will defend it to the death because they they cannot stand the thought of saying something critical of women and, and getting the backlash that, that would um, come with that. So in many respects, you know, the women, the women are stallions and the men are geldings. And all I'm asking for is maybe to try find a few more men who are Mustangs and Broncos who aren't afraid to, to say what needs to be said and, and to do what needs to be done. Because as I said, the course we're on now is, is one that's only, you know, headed downward. And, and I'd, I'd like us to avert that disaster if we can. Thank you, Delano. Great stuff you, as Jason. always. YouTube.com slash Jason Whitlock. Don't go anywhere. Vody Bakum is next. And we're going to start a real fire.
All right, welcome back. He's here. The most popular man, perhaps, uh, on the internet, or ever since I started doing this show. Vody Bakum, pastor, educator, author, uh, public intellectual, uh, disciple of God, I think would be fair uh, <laughs> to, yeah. to say. Uh, Vody, I'm just telling you, ever since I moved into this space, I have previously been, I made my name and reputation in sports. But once I moved into this space and started talking about sports and culture and politics and, and wearing my faith more on my sleeve, the number one name, everyone, you gotta meet Vody. You gotta <laughs> connect with Vody. God, he, he played football like you, Jason. And, and it made me do some homework and start asking people. And uh, you might be the smartest person I'm ever gonna engage with. Uh, and and I really whoever you've been talking to, you need to keep talking to them. <laughs> <laughs> you just from doing my homework and what you represent and the boldness with which you represent. I'm honored to have you here uh, in studio today and to be able to engage with you and hope that uh, honestly on Wednesdays I do a show called Harmony and I bring in two ministers. And, and we always ask that whatever we say, we hope that it edifies the audience and yeah. glorifies God. And I say that today in, in more earnest, <laughs> probably more earnest than I've ever said it. I hope that the discussion we have here touches people and reaches people because, man, do you got a lot to say uh, that needs to be heard. Well, man, I really appreciate you having me. I'm, I'm honored to be here. So. Let's start with your book, Fault Lines, uh, for the, the social justice movement and evangelicism's looming catastrophe. It's a heck of a title. <laughs> <laughs> I think I agree with it. Yeah, yeah. But tell us about your book. It came out in April. It's, it's doing well. It's doing gangbusters. But tell us about what you were trying to get across in this book. Well, you know, the title Fault Lines, I, I grew up in Los Angeles. Um, on a fault line and experienced uh, an earthquake or two in my, my day. And as I looked at what was happening with the social justice movement, as I looked at what was happening within evangelicalism, within churches, um, it just seemed to me that people were standing on two different sides of a fault and that the earth was moving um, and, and that it was going to be catastrophic. Um, of course, I think we see now that it is being catastrophic. Churches are dividing you know, ministries, universities, seminaries, uh, people are losing their jobs over this, um, and not only within the church, but also within the culture at large. To me, and, and you're an expert, I'm a layman, but to me, I, 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 ministers in the church, they're not standing on the word of God. They have fallen on the wrong side of the fault line. There's, there is an earthquake going on. And uh, I, I said, Tony Evans gave a sermon or a speech to radio broadcasters. And I, I, right now I'm struggling with the title of it, but he was talking about COVID and that God is shaking things up and that it's not a time for spiritual punks is what those yeah. were Tony Evans's words. And that's so much what I believe that I'm looking 
in my view, at ministers fold and start taking the gospel and fitting it to this woke social justice culture. And, and no one's willing to stand on what's clear as day. Yeah. In some cases, it's people not being willing to stand. But in other cases, it is the fact that the people who are willing to stand are being silenced. They're, they're not being given uh, a platform unless they have a platform significant enough on their own. Um, nobody's putting a microphone in front of them. Nobody's listening to them. Nobody's shining a light on them, especially if you're black, because right now the, the narrative is that black people think and feel a certain way about these issues and that the black people who don't think and feel a certain way um, are, are not really black, They're trying to curry favor with white people, so on and so forth. So anybody who's speaking intelligently about this from the wrong perspective um, usually ends up finding themselves in a place where there aren't many microphones to talk to. You've raised a point that I think applies to you. I think you're one of the most important voices of this time and people aren't rushing to put a microphone in your face. I, I, I don't see you, I mean, obviously cable news and things like, you should be the voice of this time. Do you feel that frustration as it's directed towards you, that they're trying to silence you? Um, sometimes, but you know, I, I'm, I'm not really looking for, you know, that, that, that kind of a platform. And I have been able to get uh, this message out there. The book is a, you know, national bestseller. Um, so, you know, I've been able to, to, to get around that. Um, there are others who haven't been able to do it. But, you know, what's interesting for me is that even though people have sort of shut certain doors, there are other doors that they can't shut. And the fact is that this is a conversation that is going to be had. Um, you know, we're seeing it in, in schools now as people are, you know, standing up and speaking out against critical race theory and, you know, things of that nature. Um, it, it, it's going to happen. It's unavoidable. So whatever role that I get to play in it, I'm happy to play, um, even if that's, you know, sitting on the sidelines and encouraging, you know, people like yourselves and being a resource for people who do have those opportunities. So you say the conversation's going to happen, but... The question is, how's that conversation going to be presented? Who's going to define the conversation? And one of the things that you're brilliant about that, that is like, well, no, as a media person, I get it and understand it instinctively. I'm amazed at how you get it and understand it instinctively in terms of the left or, or atheist or secular culture. They have a way of defining the conversation that puts us at a complete disadvantage. They, let's talk about social justice. Yeah. And the, the police are uh, unjust in their behavior yeah. towards blah, blah, blah. And, and so, and that's the discussion. And, and so that basically locks you into a narrative of like, oh yeah, the police are just terrible and that's the problem. You're right, let's talk about that. When, the reality may be something completely different. Yeah, you know, for me, um, I, I came to faith late. You know, I was raised by a single teenage Buddhist mother, didn't hear the gospel till my first year at university. Um, ended up very early being drawn toward apologetics. 
um, which is really a, a defense of the faith, if you will. So, you know, that's where my training and emphasis has been in the area of apologetics, in the area of defending the faith, in the area of going into hostile territory and trying to be alert as to how people are attempting to change the narrative, to flip the script and being able to respond to that. So part of that is just, you know, the way that I've always come to think about my faith. Part of that is my, my, my training. Um, and part of that is just kind of my personality and the way that I look at things and, and, and think about things. And so what I always want to do is define terms. And that's what I try to do in the book is, is, is define terms. Because when you define terms, then it's harder for people to sell you something that's ridiculous. The number one thing we should be talking about in America as believers or just people that are concerned about the direction the country is going, what should we be talking? You define the terms. What should we be talking about? Wow. Um, I think in a time like this, it's really hard to narrow it down to one thing. Um, as I look at it, especially looking at it as an expat, as somebody who's now living you know, in, a, in another part of the world and looking back at what's happening, what I find is that the unique moment that we're in is unique in part because there is no one thing. Things are going crazy on a dozen different fronts. Um, and so for me, when things are going crazy on all those different fronts, what I try to do is reduce it not to the one thing you know, out there that people ought to be talking about, but the one truth and the one reality, which is that there is a God, a God who created the world, and he created the world for his own glory. And all of these things have the common denominator of they are moving in directions that are contrary to the purpose for which they were created. So I find that if, if I keep it like that and try to keep pointing back to the God who made the world and why he made the world, then now when people are telling me that men can get pregnant, right? I, okay, I, I can take that you know, back to creation. Or when people are talking about you know, what justice is or, or what's not just, or not, I can go back to our creator because he's the one who defines justice. Um, or you know, a number of other you know, things. I find that when you know, everything seems to be spinning out of control, I just come back to the God who created the world and the reason that he created the world and bringing everything back to that. And so the way I interpret, or I wouldn't say interpret what you just said, but the way I try to apply it as a journalist and someone who's made a career in journalism, I try to, I think our number one topic should be truth. Yeah. That truth is under attack. Yep. And, and I see it in so many different examples. And again, if you have any faith at all, any faith at all, and I, it's like when you see the truth being attacked, you should get very concerned. Yeah. When people, when the whole country gets comfortable with, hey, you know what? They're birthing people. Yeah. Men can have babies. Like red lights and just like you, like holy cow, we're living in a, this isn't God's world we're yeah. living in in any yeah. way. Cause, and, 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 and I apply that to a slightly lesser degree but when all the data says like, hey, the police actually harm very few people yeah. in general, black people in particular, 
But the media is making us believe that, oh, as a black man, you can't even go out of your house because the police may kill you. It's yeah. like, that should be like a warning sign to you like, whoa, the devil's in control. Yeah, and that, that, that issue there is really what prompted me to write this book. My, you know, my, I'm, I'm serving in, in Lusaka and Zambia and went there to help start a university. And Jason, I live in a country where, you know, you ride down the street and the police will have a, you know, roadblock up somewhere and they stop you. Sometimes we call them lunch money stops, right? And they're stopping cars and they're looking for violations. If you have a violation, you pull over to the side of the road and pay your fine in cash. I'm living in a place where people get caught, you know, stealing and they get a beat down from the police and you know, everybody knows that that's what happens. You try to film it and you'll get a beat down too, right? And so when people in that part of the world began to ask questions about whether or not I was afraid of the police and, you know, started, you know, repeating this narrative about, you know, police hunting and killing black men, uh, that was just a bridge too far. I was like, you guys have no idea. Black people in America are the safest, freest, most prosperous black people on planet Earth. There's a reason that black people are not trying to leave America, but black people from everywhere where there are black people are trying to get into America, and that's because we know better. <laughs> I'm gonna skip ahead because it keeps, you keep referencing and I wanna, why are you in Africa? And, and, and I say that selfishly because like, Man, we need you here. I, I need you here. You gotta be the <laughs> backbone of fixing what's going on here in America and protecting what you just described. Like, this is the destination for black people. Yeah. Why are you in Africa and not here? You know, I had an opportunity six years ago to go to Zambia and help start a university. It's a classical Christian, liberal arts, biblical worldview university. Um, it, it's a unique opportunity in a unique place and something that I was really suited for. Um, and the, the, the time and the season was right. Um, you know, we have nine children, <clears throat> excuse me. And, um, you know, six years ago, my wife and I, you know, took the seven who are still at home and, and, uh, and, and, and moved across the water and haven't, and haven't regretted it, you know, one bit. And in terms of being able to have influence here, you know, it's interesting. I, th I did. I, I did think about that. But I'm here three or four times a year. Um, I'm still, you know, writing, publishing and speaking on these issues. And because of the time in which we live and because of, you know, the way media works and social media works, um, I still have an opportunity uh, to have that influence. Um, and of course, my wife believes that the Lord took me away so that I, I could do that without getting in all the kind of trouble that I would have gotten in had I stayed. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to go back at this again just out of pure selfishness. Yeah. This is just Jason Whitlock. It's, it's an ungodly question I'm about to ask but, or to go back at this again. But because America to me has been a light unto the world as it relates to Christianity, that's why I feel like protecting this home base here is so important. And so do you ever because and trust me, I'm sure there's front lines in Africa and the, I yeah. know the work you're doing over there is important. 
But I feel like the culture war and the destruction of Christianity, like this is the front lines, because if they can bring down America, it's going to be much easier to do across the globe. Am I right, wrong for thinking? Is that a narrow well, focus? You know, I think people have thought that a lot historically, but, you know, the center of gravity of Christianity has always moved. You know, Jerusalem, Athens, um, continental Europe, uh, Great Britain, you know, and then, you know, the United, United States. Uh, the kingdom of God uh, is undefeated. Uh, and, and not only is it undefeated, it's undefeatable. Um, and so for me, I, I have to view myself as a citizen of the kingdom. I'm proud to be an American. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that, you know, God in his providence um, saw fit that, you know, I would be born in the United States and have the opportunities that that afforded to me and give me the magic passport, you know, to be able to go uh, to and fro, you know, in all the places that I can. But I think what the Lord has done here uh, is important, not only because of what it has done in the United States, but also because of the kind of influence and impact that that's been able to have around the world. And I mean that both in terms of the gospel witness that has gone forth from the United States um, and also just in terms of the American witness, you know, that's gone forth. Um, and so I, I, you know, I don't see it as an either or for me. I see it as a both end. You've given me a lot to think about. I'm so glad I asked that question and a follow up because you've just blown my, like, it can move. To other, and maybe I need to be looking for a place. <laughs> I need no, to go wherever. <laughs> we all can't go. We all can't go. <laughs> when you find the new location, let me know. I'm going to be there uh, immediately. Uh, and, and, and so you may have already answered this, but I just want to follow up to the second part of the title of your book. Describe the looming catastrophe that you see for evangelicism. Yeah, I, I think the looming catastrophe is no longer a looming catastrophe. It's a present catastrophe. And, and I think it's a couple of things. You mentioned one. I think when you hear people who were, were faithful ministers of the gospel um, now sounding like, um, you know, Ibram X. Kendi and, and, and you know, Kimberly Crenshaw, um, I, I think that's hugely problematic. I think another thing is, like I said, the fact that there is this massive divide that's taking place. It's happening in churches, it's happening in denominations, it's happening in you know, universities, um, it, it, it's happening in families that are being torn apart you know, over this issue. Um, it's, it's no longer a looming catastrophe, it's here. Critical race theory. You, it's already taken root and overrun Africa? You, you. Well, no, not as, much, not as much critical race theory. Um, you know, Marxism has, you know, the ideas of cultural Marxism have. Um, critical race theory is, is, is a very American ideology. Mm, okay. Um, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was born here. Um, and, and really like the first tenet of critical race theory is the idea that racism is normal, that it's ubiquitous. Um, and critical race theory came out of critical legal studies um, and critical legal studies, again, is about America and American law. 
Um, so it, it very much has to do with the assumption that America and American law is inherently racist, that American culture is inherently racist, and that racism is ubiquitous um, and, and really incurable, if you will, in the American context. And so my argument is they're making that argument to, to argue America's a failure. Yeah. It was founded in ways that determined from the, that it was going to be a failure. So we must write a new constitution and we must try Marxism, communism, socialism. A am I right for th that that's the end? Yeah, you know, critical theories are always inherently revolutionary in their nature. I mean, that, that first word critical kind of points to that, right? Um, and so they are trying to, to, to find and problematize whatever the thing is that they're applying critical theory to. Um, and so, you know, when you're talking about critical race theory, there is a sense in which, you know, you, you look at the, the, the Marxist assumption of oppressors and the oppressed. What we have to do is we have to find out where that oppression is, where that oppression is coming from. And then we have to sort of overthrow or overturn that oppression. Um, and in the United States, if it's our founding, um, if it's so-called majority culture, um, then that's what has to be revolutionized. You say Marxism has taken root in Africa. Could you explain to the layman, because again, I think for a lot of black people, it's like, I don't, Marxism is like something, a word that they hear, but don't fully understand, don't understand the dangers. I've been constantly trying to harp on like, hey man, this isn't harmless. That yeah. the people that started Black Lives Matter say they're self-trained Marxists. Again, you understand Mar Karl Marx's theory is hostile to religion. That So if you could explain some of the things that you've seen or see over in Africa as they've adopted Marxist theory and just try to help black people understand like communism, Marxism, this yeah. stuff is dangerous. Yeah, and really when it comes down to it, Marx's ideas were, were called conflict theory. And essentially his ideas came down to the fact that all of life could be summed up and defined as a struggle, um, and a struggle over limited resources between the people who have those resources, right, and means of production, and the people who don't. And the people who have them um, will inevitably um, oppress the people who don't. Um, and so as a result of that, the idea is that you would move from capitalism to something like socialism or communism, where you didn't have that dynamic, where everything is shared equally, right? From each according to his ability to each according to his need, right? Uh, so it's the idea of collectivism uh, as opposed to the idea of individualism, the idea of communism as opposed you know, to the idea of capitalism. Um, and that, that sort of collective idea it would be the dominant ideology on, on the African continent and in much of the world, really. And so a lot of people hear the word collective and, oh, that's a good thing. We're all in this together. And we are the world. Until they come for your stuff, right? So for example, uh, the average American is wealthier than 70% of the rest of the world. 
not wealthy Americans, the average American is wealthier than 70% of the rest of the world. What a lot of Americans don't realize is that when you think about this within America and this idea of wealth redistribution within America, there is a global sense in which people feel like that needs to happen. And whereas in America, it's you know, white people and whiteness, right? That is seen as the oppressor. Globally, it's America and the West that's seen as the oppressor. And so that redistribution is a redistribution from America and the West to the rest of the world. Now, when they start coming for our stuff, all of a sudden then people are not going to be as positive toward collectivism. Voted the other reason why, you know, I'm such a, a fan is because you present uh, Christianity in, in a masculine way and you appeal men to be men. And, and that's so much of the church, particularly the black church, is, is being dominated by women now. And I see ministers catering to women and, and there's this attack on masculinity. Yeah. And I believe we are at the forefront I look, you're not here to, to witness it as much as I am, but like everything in our media space, from television commercials to movies, it's like if they can put a gay black man, a feminine gay black man in any commercial, in any plot storyline on yeah. a TV show, is, and I, I've been literally telling my friends this for 10 years, yeah. and they're just now waking up to it. I've been like, hey man, are y'all not watching what's going on? The, the plan they're laying out for your little boys? It, is, there's a lane that we're being shoved into. Uh, do you, am I right, am I wrong? Am no, I, I absolutely see that, and what people don't understand is, an attack on masculinity is an attack on the God who created us. He created us male and female. We are not the same. And there is beauty in the differences between male and female. And the, the problem is that when you attack masculinity, you are actually attacking a preserving force. If you don't have strong men in a culture, then what you have is uh, young men who are not kept in check. And what do they do? They wreak havoc. And when those young men wreak havoc, you start looking around and what do you immediately want? You immediately want someone or something strong enough to bring that into order again. So it's like we're creating a problem that we're gonna have to run around and try to solve. And the way that that problem is solved is by the very thing that you attacked in the first place. So, you know, men are a preserving force. Men are a force that defends society, that defends the family. So when you attack men, you are leaving things that need to be defended in a position where they're not being defended. So we're actually cutting off our nose despite our face. Delano Squires comes on this show a lot, uh, and to, he was on here earlier t today, and we constantly talk about um, men uh, shunning responsibility. Yeah. And, and we see it, and I, I particularly like, our position on abortion to me is an irresponsible position. That this leftist, liberal, feminist point of view, <laughs> 
that's her decision. I don't control that. That's just on her. That's on her. Whatever she yeah. decides, I'm good with. And we just had this conversation today. I just that's an irresponsible point of view to have. Yeah. And it goes back to what you're saying. It's like when you take that irresponsible position and now abortion, particularly here in America, if you go look at the percentage of how many black babies are being destroyed yeah. in the womb, you're actually co-signing your genocide and death. Yeah, 12% of the population, almost 30% of abortions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, and in most of in most of our major cities, more black babies are aborted than born. Um, so yeah, it, it it is absolutely problematic. And now now you touch me where I live. Okay, um, my 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 wife and I um, we've adopted seven children. We have nine children. Seven of them we adopted. And the reason that we got into the adoption world is because we just went from telling young women give your baby life to telling them. Give your baby to us. Um, and, and, and we realized that we needed to put uh, our money where our mouth was, so to speak. Um, and so this is something that is incredibly near and dear um, uh, to my heart and near and dear um, to my family. And you're absolutely right. And it's so ironic that on the one hand, we are up in arms about the police hunting down and killing black men, which is not the case. But nobody's saying anything about the abortion mills that are killing black children in the womb. And harvesting the organs. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, so, yeah, I, I, that, that, the irony of that um, is, is something that is, it, it, it's sad to say the least. I don't know if this is a proper question, but I've, I've thrown it at people recently, and, and I want you to give me a biblical either justification or say, hey, Jason, you're wrong, blah, blah, blah. But I, I've, I've said to people, we have this arrogance in America, like, whew, those people 100 years ago, 150 years ago, wow, they were bad people. Look how good and superior we are. Yeah. And I've started to ask people, I was like, man, I would love to talk to God and ask him, slavery or abortion? Which group of people, one group co-signed for slavery, one group is co-signing for abortion. I wonder how God feels about that. Who, who's the superior of those two groups of people? Yeah, it's interesting. And the Bible is very clear that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And ultimately, when you look at it, you're seeing the sinfulness of man and the inhumanity of man, you know, towards man that is a byproduct of our fallenness and our fallen nature. And whether it was, you know, slavery, and we, you know, you say 150 years ago, you know, there are more slaves in the world today than, than there have ever been. Um, and, and, and most of those slaves are, are, are black and brown people. Um, and, and they're also being enslaved by other black and brown people, which has also happened throughout most of history. Um, and so I think what we have to do is take an honest look at the fact that we are fallen people and that we're being reminded constantly that we are sinners in need of a savior. Um, and, and sin is not something God takes lightly. Sin is something so serious that God crushed and killed his only begotten son in order to atone for sin. That's how serious sin is to God. 
And so whether it is abortion or whether it is slavery or whether it's, you know, you know, sex trafficking or whether it's I mean, you, you, you fill in the blank. Um, I think one of the dangers that we have is when we look at these big sins, we have a tendency to think that the sins in our own heart are not as significant. So I look at the slaver uh, or I look at the, you know, the, the, the person who's, you know, doing abortions or whatever. And it makes me think that what I've done is somehow not significant when the fact of the matter is um, I am as guilty before God, apart from the person and work of Christ, as the slaver and the abortionist combined. Mm. You gave a speech today in Lebanon, the, uh, the Politics of Sex Conference. You talked about critical sex theory. <laughs> what is critical sex theory? Yeah, that was, uh, that was a kind of a play on words that uh, the organizers sort of gave to me. But the point was that, you know, the emphasis of individuals like, you know, Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud and, and others, um, it, it, it's not just in the areas of economics and it's not just in the areas of politics, but the way that we, um, the way that we think the ideas that we adopt have consequences in every area of life, and especially when it comes to sex. And I think we're seeing that now. We're, we're seeing that in a number of ways and in a number of areas, not the least of which, you know, we've already alluded to earlier, is the whole, you know, transgender phenomenon that we're experiencing right now. Um, I, I said today, you know, it boggles the mind. I remember having conversations, um, I want to say four years ago because the Olympics were a year late, but five years ago, um, about the Olympics being in jeopardy because of the whole, you know, transgender issue. And I said, what are we going to do, you know, when Olympic athletes are identifying as, you know, and of course, five years ago, people were like, ah, you know, you're being ridiculous, you know, yada, yada, yada. But we had transgender athletes, always male to female, right, um, that were competing in the Olympics this year. Um, you know, we've, we've got transgender athletes who are taking uh, medals away from women and taking state championships away from women and taking scholarships, you know, away from women. And I think that it's so ironic that, you know, the big argument was that, you know, the patriarchy was the problem. Right. And, and women needed to be protected from the patriarchy. But now it's liberals and feminists and progressives that are actually you know, attacking women in these ways with our desire to somehow deceive ourselves with this whole transgender ideology. I, we'll end on this now. I can keep and talk to you forever. But one of the other things I, I've been arguing in, in relates to the transgender thing, we're creating a society that whatever you feel, whatever desire you have, we must legalize it, normalize it, and make it part of society and culture. And I see that as satanic. Yeah. I see that Aleister Crowley, do what thou wilt. And that's what, I, that's what I see. And I try to explain to people, you know, not everything is for everybody. Yeah. And, and, and that really mature, responsible uh, people that try to have any obedience to God they try to tame their desires because we're filled with sinful desires. And, and there has to be limits placed on, because 
Vody, I'm telling you, six times a day, I'd like to eat McDonald's. God <laughs> has shown me that, well, Jason, that'll lead to gluttony yeah. and health problems yeah. and you won't be able to reach your full potential. Yeah. And, and so I have to put limits on my desires. And, and again, I, can, I don't have to limit it to food or gluttony. And lim- I got to limit my lustful desires because it's not healthy for me. And it's, it's, it's kept me from finding a wife and being married. And so I, I, this whole mentality that we've gotten into that whatever, all of your desires have to be met, I see, them, I see that as satanic. It is satanic. It's idolatry. It's the idolatry of self. It's, it's selfism. Um, you know, it, it is the idea that, uh, you know, we don't believe in a God, but if we did, he would be me. Right. Um, and, and, and our desires are, are put forth as the. That is awesome. <laughs> That is what they yeah, yeah, it is. It is. And that's how you get your desires put on a pedestal. Right. And you de- you define things as good to the degree that they meet your desires. And it goes back to what we talked about earlier. You know, when it comes to all of these things that are happening, I come back to the fact that there is a God who created the world. He created it for his own glory and everything exists for the glory of God. And anything that is out of line with that is absolutely sinful and satanic. Vody, thank you so much uh, for granting me this interview audience. I I say this in all seriousness. I I actually think you're younger than me. But man, I would wish you were here in America to be my mentor. Uh, We need you. I can speak for Delano. Delano's in D.C., married with three kids, believes all the stuff you're talking about. Uh, Uncle Jimmy's usually here with me. He, he, we need you, man, and I, I just keep pumping out the content, the books, and, and keep doing you, and you've got me now looking where I can move in the world because it's <laughs> Christianity's leaving America. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go where, wherever it's next, I'm going. Well, don't run, don't run, man, don't run, don't run. No, really, this has been a pleasure. I, and I, I'm really excited about the opportunity to be here, grateful for what you're doing, encouraged by what you're doing. And, um, you know, I, I know how difficult it can be. Um, so you'll, you'll, you'll be in my prayers. Thank you so much. All right, that's it, and that's all for us today. Tomorrow's gonna take us out of here in song. Uh, we'll see you on Monday. Came like a fighter, striking like a ladder, making all this moves for freedom. I want freedom. No negotiation, my sister, no relation. We all just wanna have freedom. Sitting on the corner, never been alone. I'm breaking my back for freedom. Bless, we are living, get back. We are receiving, all receiving. We all wanna be free. We want freedom. I just want, I wanna be, I just want.